you know, I was looking into the success rates. So AA has a success rate. It's, it's between five and 10%. Um, treatment in as a whole has a success rate about the same. It's probably closer to five than 10, but it's around in there somewhere. And then they have this thing, spontaneous remission. And spontaneous remission, that's where, hey, somebody just decides they're going to stop doing something or they're going to get well, and they get well without doing anything. So I thought to myself, well, gee whiz, I can spend another 50000 at treatment. Uh, I can go to AA and spend a buck a day and go through that process, or I can do nothing. And my chances are statistically the same. And, and I thought, okay, well, wait a second. Let's look into this spontaneous remission. Because, you know, you look at people with stage four cancer, you look at people that the doctor comes into the hospital and says, well, you get your affairs in order, you know, you got three to six months to live, or, you know, you, you've heard the story. And then somehow these people go out and live another decade or two and have amazing lives and, and they have this remission. And I thought, how can we not leave it up to spontaneity? How can we help to create this remission process? Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today's guest is the founder and co-director of the Sanctuary at Sedona, Dean Tara Borelli. Dean's pioneering work in developing the Sanctuary's integrative addictive recovery program has been used to help hundreds of clients to successfully treat addiction. Dean is a member of the senior teaching staff for the Four Winds Society and author of Be Recovered, Transformational Healing Through Integrative Addictive Recovery. He has traveled to sacred sites in over 60 countries to study world mythology, religion, spirituality, wisdom traditions, and indigenous healing and wellness practices. Stay tuned to the end of the podcast to learn how you can get a free copy of Dean's book. So welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today I'm interviewing a very interesting man that I'm excited to share with you, Dean Tara Bordelli, or Tara Borelli. It's I trip on your name, Dean, but thank you very much for being here. Yeah, thank you, Paul. Thanks for having me, and and, and again, thanks for all the work that you're doing in the world. You too. I I uh, would share that I I do a lot of work with people with addictions. I think it's pretty much impossible not to work with people that have addictions when you work in any kind of therapeutic practice uh, and start looking into, you know, beliefs, behaviors, habits, and the way people expend their energy. And I was uh, a couple of years ago, I was working with a client whose wife was having a pretty serious problem with alcohol addiction. And he asked me if I could help him find a uh, treatment center. So I started doing research on treatment centers and Penny uh, also put a bunch of them in front of me and I narrowed it down to the sanctuary at Sedona. But at that time, I didn't realize you were involved in it. And uh, I forward that information and I, I've saved it and given it to various people and mentioned it to my students in various classes. And one of my students and friends, Patricia Garza Pinto, emailed me one day and said, you really need to interview Dean Terraborelli from the sanctuary. And I thought, well, that was a synchronicity right there. Yeah. So I, uh, when you responded to Penny and 
shared an interest in the interview, I started doing more research into the sanctuary and I watched a number of videos and read some things and I really tried to pick up a sense of what you guys are doing there and I, I really loved it. And so I'm excited to talk to you about a variety of the issues that are related to that and with the intention of doing our best to help people. So I'm wondering if we could start off by having you share some of your own history with addiction. I, I watched some of your videos and got a bit of a synopsis, but it seems to me that your path into the work you're doing, you know, was the, was the hard road. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think that I, I probably began my addiction just like, just like anybody else. And uh, when I was a young, young man, I began smoking marijuana and I liked it, and and I didn't think really much of it, but I wound up uh, developing a pretty good habit early on. And you know, I was smoking I was smoking marijuana. I don't know five, six, ten times a day. You know, at age twelve, thirteen years old. And well, that's an early start, yeah. Yeah, that was an early start, and and the kids in my neighborhood were older than me, so I just began the process, and and it became sort of a a little bit of an identity it gave me something to do. It gave me sort of a, uh, you know, I felt a little bit awkward. I, I was, um, you know, back in the day that I never felt really well adjusted or like I fit in, you know, it's just an average little kid. But anyway, that then led to, uh, in my late teens, I started drinking and that then began a pretty heavy, heavy process. And, uh, at the height of that wound up drinking a you know, one of those half gallon bottles of vodka every day. And uh, that's what led me to treatment the first time. And so I wind up in a treatment center and they say to me, you know what, you're an alcoholic and an addict. And I thought, okay, hold on. Um, let me, let me think about that for a second. You know, I'm not stupid. I'm moderately intelligent, you know, so it's not that I'm, I'm, I can't understand that this is not good for me, but I can't seem to stop. I'm not crazy. You know, I can function in the world. So it's not that I'm too crazy to understand that this is an issue. So the only thing that made sense to me was, yes, in fact, I'm an addict. So I took it on. I became Mr. You know, the quintessential addict going to all these meetings and I was in all these groups and, you know, I, I was, I wanted to get well. So I just immersed myself in what was presented to me, which is uh, kind of the 12 step. This is what you do. And so that became, Hey, an identity. Now all of a sudden I have a context to put this thing in to make to, that made sense, you know? And this went on for about four or five years until I relapse. And, you know, Paul, you've been around and you know what addicts do when they relapse, they hit it hard, right? Because that's what you do. Yeah. And so, you know, this whole then treatment cycle continues and, and then I develop some more clean time and eventually I get some pills and that leads to this, uh, fairly substantial opiate addiction that uh, at the height of that, I was taking a hundred Percocet every day. You know, I was getting them from the VA hospital, taking a whole bunch of benzos to go to bed at night. And I didn't realize the trouble I was getting myself into until I couldn't get them uh, one day. And, you know, wow. I'm not stupid. So I knew something was going to get eventually, but I, I didn't understand the magnitude of what was going on. And that then led to this very debilitating heroin habit. Um, and to, to 
you, you know, the things that happened during this process, uh, I went to rapid opiate detox a couple of times and it didn't look like it does now. Rapid opiate detox was a little cruder back then. And uh, finally one day, you know, I, I, I was, you know, had naltrexone implanted in my body and I couldn't, opiates, you know, all my receptor sites were occupied. So I started smoking crack to, cause I just couldn't stand the detox. And so this whole thing spread out over about 30 years. I was in treatment for about 20 of those years. And uh, every year I go to treatment centers. So I've been to some of the best treatment centers that money can buy. And I, I paid very close attention in them. I wanted to get well, you know, Hey, I'm, I have people that love me. I have a career that's going pretty well. I have, you know, everything seems to be going well in my life, except for this particular aspect, which actually was most of my life, you know, 90% of my life force went to either trying to stop getting high or trying to find more drugs to get high. And, and, um, you know, that, so that, that was my life and I wanted to get well. And during that time when, when traditional treatment wasn't working, I began the process of looking around the world. So I've been to 50 countries, at least if I heard of a shaman or a mystic or a cleric or a doctor or a teacher somewhere in some remote part of the world, I get on an airplane to go over and see them because I really wanted to get well. And so my addiction was a pretty, pretty furious thing. You know, if I uh, started to share all my war stories, you know, I could write a book the size of war and peace full with all the trauma drama that goes along with it. You know, I've been dead, clinically dead a couple of times. I've overdosed in the dozens of times, you know, hospitalized and blah, blah, blah. So it's been a, it's been quite a journey for me. And that's, that's uh, what my addiction story looks like. Yeah. It's a one that I've seen, uh, quite a number of times in my own career, and it's it's not nearly as uncommon as a lot of people listening might think. Um, I'm curious, what was your career? What were you doing? I was, work? In man- I was in manufacturing, and one of the things that I, and I think some of your listeners will probably resonate, um, so I had this business going, you know, I worked with my brother, and, you know, we had a small factory that, that went, and... Um, so I became a really good manager. So while in the, in, the, in my addictive process, you know, hey, I've got uh, my job and my income. I got to take care of that. I've got my family that I'm going to, they're going to worry about me and I don't want them to stop me. So I have to kind of manage them. If the police ever catch me with this amount of drugs, it's going to be really hard to convince them that this is just for my own personal consumption. So I have to worry about them. I've got my health going on. So I have to manage that. I've got my recovery that I'm trying to go. So I'm trying to manage that. So I've got all of these uh, things going and nobody really knew until kind of the bitter end of this thing, because I was so good at navigating and uh, getting through the day. So I, I'm willing to bet that a lot of people fall into that category. You know, we, we protect our wounds. We protect our addictions. Uh, we, you know, we just want to, the one thing the human does is we try to stay in the status quo because that's safe or comfortable. So we get good at navigating that. And so I was an outstanding manager. So nobody knew uh, what was going on in my life during this whole time. And, you know, it's exhausting trying to manage one of those aspects, let alone all of them. Yeah. You know, in my work, I actually have a, course I sell online called 
the one, two, three for overcoming addiction, obesity, and disease. It's the one, two, three, four. And it's based on a model I developed. One love. What is, what do you, what do you love enough to change for? Um, I often quote psychologist Jerry West, who says, if you have a big enough dream, you don't need a crisis. So the first step is finding out something that you love more than what, you know, what's limiting you or challenging you. Two is there's only two forces that create everything in the universe, the female yin and the male yang. So I look at people's lives and where they're balancing, how well they're balancing those creative forces within the context of the four doctors. Uh, three is choices. There's only three choices we can make in relationship to any person, place, or thing. The optimal, which is best for everybody involved. The suboptimal, which is usually that which gives us some form of instant gratification but causes problems on our dream team, which is whoever's working with us to create safety and security and and accomplish our goals in life. And then the third choice is do nothing, which has two expressions. Uh, do nothing can mean I need to take a time out because maybe a conversation's getting heated and we're losing connection with each other or do nothing means I don't have enough information. So I need to get more uh, information before I can make an informed decision. And the most painful one is, is indifference to just not care. So it's, what do you love enough to change for? Where are you out of balance? What choices are you willing to make in regard to balancing your life with regard to creating happiness, Dr. Happy, moving your body effectively, Dr. Movement, getting enough rest, Dr. Quiet, and eating in ways that are supportive of your body's individual needs. And what I found is that most people that have addictions have some kind of trauma in their life or a series of traumas that they haven't been able to resolve, and they're actually looking for safe love. And I found, you know, the example I often give is it doesn't, a bottle never complains about how you kiss it or a cigarette doesn't complain about how you put it in your mouth or, you know, you can get this sense of either an alleviation of your stress, fear or pain or a sense of connection, or you can make yourself unconscious, but let go of the conscious thoughts by drowning yourself with heroin or whatever drug it is. I'm just curious what are your thoughts with regard to addictions as a means of finding safe love and how much trauma was there in your early life that may have led you to looking for safe love? Yeah. You know, excellent point of view there. I, I think if we kind of look at sort of the basic drivers of human behavior down at its most rudimentary form, what do we do? We seek pleasure and we avoid pain. And yeah. many people go into addiction, uh, not because they're in pain. Uh, you know, we don't perceive, gosh, I'm so in pain um, because this all resides unconsciously. So 95% of what's going on in all of our brains is unconscious. So I'm not aware of, of what's driving my behavior on a conscious level most of the time until I begin to do the work of uh, being recovered. But um, so most people begin the process of getting high because it makes them feel good. And, you know, I can dance better or I have courage to talk to a member of the opposite sex or, you know, to tell my boss to jump off a bridge, whatever. And, and we have to stop and ask the question, well, what is it about my belief system or the way that I feel about myself that I need to be intoxicated in order to uh, say 
kind of release my inhibitions. You know, why can't I dance better just because I, you know, I'm in, uninhibited and I go out there and dance the way I, you know, as if nobody was looking. So we have to then, that then begins this process of where, how do we feel about ourselves and how do we feel about the world around us? So ultimately, um, you had mentioned the word connection. Connection is a soul thing. It's part of what makes us human. We are tribal in nature. Um, so this whole like kind of lone wolf competition, all the things that, that uh, we may have been taught are actually not true. The most successful cultures on the planet have been cooperative. Uh, we are used to being part of something. Being part of um, is, is important to the human experience. So when people don't feel that, uh, then all the, they're going to look for something. So most likely they're looking for this connection. We're, at people, in my opinion, that are getting high, they're looking for something. They're just looking in a way that's going to ultimately become unsustainable. And, yeah. and, um, and, and so I'm right there with you. In my own, you know, I, I, I will share with you, and this is, I think this is pretty well agreed upon now, there is always a cause for addiction. Um, there, it, it, it's sometimes people just say, well, I'm an addict and that's just, you know, part of my DNA. Well, Hey, just because something runs in the family doesn't mean it's predetermined for one thing. Now we have epigenetics, which means that my genetic expression can change over time based on my, um, external stimulus. So, uh, this, this whole thing that, you know, I just wound up an addict is probably a, a fairly an older model and a way to look at it. So it's either a physical or an emotional thing. That's, that's the driver for addiction. And when I say physical, there's, you mentioned balance and imbalance, uh, particularly in the gut. You know, you mentioned one of the doctors is Dr. Diet. Well, we know now that Dr. Diet is really important for people with anxiety and depression because inflammation um, is the precursor to anxiety and depression. We used to think it happens uh, concurrently, you know, it's occurring, co-occurring disorder, but actually it happens upstream. So there could be something in the body that is creating distress. And of course that it doesn't send a signal up saying, gosh, my, my gut is, you know, distress, but it will send a signal into my brain that just says, I'm not okay. Um, so now I've got this underlying feeling that I'm not okay. So I have, it's sort of like a little fire. I got to try to put that out and nothing like a cocktail or a, or a Xanax to do that or a Big Mac or a, you know, a big deal or any of the number of addictions that people can have. So, um, so it's, it's either that or it's some unprocessed emotional wound. And what's interesting, um, you know, our conscious mind, I barely remember much of anything that happens. You know, I don't remember what I had for dinner last night or the night before or, or uh, any number of things, unless it's emotionally charged, that's how we remember things. If the higher its emotional s signature, the more likely we are to remember it. But my unconscious mind remembers everything. So all my unprocessed stuff. Um, and, you know, for me, I had this very debilitating addiction, but I had no real memory of any trauma, Paul. This is the interesting thing. And that just made me feel worse about it. Like I would go to treatment with all these people that had stories of how they were hurt and wounded and abused. And, and I didn't have any of that. And I thought, gosh, you know, what's wrong with me? 
And actually, it was only last year that I remembered uh, something that happened to me when I was in first grade. And that changed my direction in my life. And I had zero recollection of it until a year ago. And so, um, so this is where really, you know, our psyche wants to process this stuff out. And what happens is that it's not what happens to us, Paul, it's all the decisions we make, all the coping strategies, all the ways that we will then navigate in the world that come back to haunt us later. Hi, this is Paul Check, and I am super excited to share an amazing line of super nutritional products that I found called Organifi, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I. If you go to Organifi.com and check out their product line, they have a wide variety of excellent products. And unlike any food-based product company that's ever showed interest in sponsoring the Czech Institute or any of my courses or products or videos or any of the projects I've done, that stated they were organic. When I asked them for their organic certification, I never got them. I have been through this before. When I contacted Organifi and asked to see their documentation that they were legitimately using organic source materials, very quickly I got an email with 14 organic certifications showing that their source materials are certified organic. Then I put the products to the test with my family and on my own body, and I must say I was very impressed. They have a wide variety. They have green juice, red juice. They have a product called Gold that aids with sleep, muscle aches and pains, and joint stiffness. It helps bolster your immunity. It's awesome. One of my favorites is called Pure, and it's got lion's mane. It's Bobab infused, it's great for gut health, brain performance, lion's mane is excellent for stimulating neurogenesis, I love to give it to my son Mana. Another one that's fantastic is Immunity, which is an organic superfood product, and it supports your immune system, it tastes fantastic. I like to put these right in some water and mix them in and drink them, or put them into tea, they have a variety of great stuff like green juices, red juice. They have Organifi Gold. It aids with restless sleep, muscle aches and pains, stiff joints, bolsters your immunity. You'll wake up feeling rejuvenated if you have that in the evening. They have awesome protein powders. Angie's about to give birth to our second child and she's been really enjoying their protein powder. Their products are safe for pregnant mothers. I'm a very picky guy, and I'm hard to impress when it comes to food products, but these guys really got me. I love the products. If you are ready to try some amazing products that can really make your life more efficient, if you don't have time to do a lot of cooking, you're a busy executive, or you're a mother, and you've got lots going on, and you need something to give your kids now and then that's legitimately nutritious, good for them, and organic, which means clean and high in nutrients, you can't go wrong with Organifi. Go to Organifi, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com, and when you're checking out, put in check 20s, lowercase c, lowercase h, lowercase e, lowercase k, 20, and you will get a 20% off at checkout. 
and you will be amazed, just like I was. Can't wait to hear your feedback. Check them out, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com. When you're checking out, use the code C-H-E-K-20 for a 20% discount and prepare to be nourished, enlivened, and amazed. I'd love to hear your feedback. Yeah, there's a few things I would share in in regard to what you've just shared. One, the enteric nervous system is the solar plexus. It's the part of our, our nervous system, our autonomic nervous system that regulates our digestive eliminative function and, and is what innervates and creates the sensory function inside our digestive tract. And most people aren't aware that the enteric nervous system has a bi-directional relationship with the sympathetic system, the parasympathetic system, the endocrine system, the somatic or peripheral system, the musculoskeletal system, and our limbic system. So whenever we're eating things or emoting in ways that trigger inflammation, it causes regulation of all the key bodily systems and it responds as though we're under stress. So people start dropping into stress behaviors without even realizing, for example, that it's things that they're putting into their body that are triggering that inflammation, but it can also be our own mental emotional self-management system, which as you mentioned in your own way is largely unconscious. So this is one of the reasons I have a four doctor approach because I found that if you're missing one of those doctors, there's the, the, it's like having a house and leaving a door open at night and wondering why when you wake up in the morning, all your furniture's gone. You can't live a balanced life without awareness of those four doctors. You bet. Um, it's so interesting Now we talk about, uh, the body, the mind, the soul, and the spirit. And, uh, these things are all intimately connected, just like, uh, as you're saying, the organs in our bodies are all connected. If we look at the vagus nerve, it's connecting. Everything is connected to everything. And this is the universe that actually we live in. We're all connected energetically inside my body. Um, you know, all of my organs are connected to my nervous system, et cetera, this thing. And this is why functional medicine is becoming uh, so popular because it's a field of science that takes into account the interconnectedness of all the systems in the body and how they communicate with each other. And this becomes imperative in terms of our well-being. So I think that, and if we're gonna talk about drug addiction or uh, mental health, ultimately we have to talk about well-being and balance. And when we are out of balance, then something's gonna give. It's just the nature of the universe. So- Well, yeah, that, yeah I was just gonna say that's very true. And, and I teach, when I show my four doctor system, I talk about how people are so freaked out now with all the genetic tests and many people come to me saying, oh, I have the fat gene or I have the cancer gene, dot, dot, dot. And, and they, they, of course, think that they're doomed to that uh, future. And I tell them a chain is only as strong as the weakest link. And now that you know that you have a weak link, weak link there, you should be inspired to be conscious of and manage your own happiness, your own diet, your own rest, and your own need for movement, because those things fortify the chain of being. And if you ignore any one of those, the first place that the chain is going to break is exactly where 
your genes have informed you. So <laughs> you can either use that to scare the hell out of yourself, or you can use that to inspire yourself. You know, I, I like where you're going there. If we look at, now we've been looking at epigenetics for a long time and, and um, you know, giving talks about it way back when. Epigenetics basically means that, hey, my, yes, I got my genome from my parents on the night of conception. And, and that is, in fact, my genome and it is what it is. But whether those genes express or not, uh, they're like switches. Whether the switches is in an off or on place has a lot to do with my environment. So what is my environment? That's everything that I think, everything that I eat, every place that I hang out, my friends that I'm hanging out with, the music that I listen to, all the stimuli that comes into my experience, body, mind, soul, energy, um, is either upregulating my genes, meaning I'm getting younger, healthier, or it's down-regulating my genes. So something that was really interesting for me, uh, you know, as I was looking at what to do, you know, and I've thought about this problem, I mean, you can imagine how many man hours have gone into uh, my recovery and, and since, you know, now working at the sanctuary. And I thought, um, you know, I was looking into the success rates. So, AA has a success rate. It's, it's between 5 and 10%. Um, treatment in, as a whole has a success rate about the same. It's probably closer to 5 than 10, but it's around in there somewhere. And then they have this thing, spontaneous remission. And spontaneous remission, that's where, hey, somebody just decides they're going to stop doing something or they're going to get well, and they get well without doing anything. So I thought to myself, well, gee whiz, I can spend another 50000 at treatment. Uh, I can go to AA and spend a buck a day and go through that process, or I can do nothing, and my chances are statistically the same. And and I thought, okay, well, wait a second. Let's look into this spontaneous remission because, you know, you look at people with stage four cancer. You look at people that the doctor comes into the hospital and says, well, you get your affairs in order. You know, you got three to six months to live, or, you know, you, you've heard the story. And then somehow these people go out and live another decade or two and have amazing lives and, and they have this remission. And I thought, how can we not leave it up to spontaneity? How can we help to create this remission process? And that was the clue to, to recovery and, and exactly what you're talking about. Hey, just because I have a predisposition to something doesn't mean that I'm a slave or a victim to it. It just means I got to attention to that that's the kind of a hand that i've been dealt and everybody's got a different hand so you know you got to play the cards in in the way that's going to be best for your body and your recovery yeah the way i teach epigenetics to my students and my patients to make it really simple for them as i say you've all seen a genome and you know what genetic sequences are so just imagine you turn a genome sideways and visualize it as the keyboard on a piano. Now, how you play that keyboard is going to determine whether you're making music or noise. If you pour a bunch of strawberry milkshakes and sugar in there, you're going to gum the keyboard up and you're going to have gene problems. If you beat on the keys with a hammer, treat yourself violently or act violently in relationships, you're going to find out which of those keys has a weak link in it and you're going to end up paying the price. And I found that my students can, can really grasp that concept because, 
you know, the piano is, is there and, and just like the genes are on off regulators, when you touch a key, it's on. And when you're not touching it, it's off. And as you just said, our environment and all the factors of which are many are playing those keys, but usually it's the choices we're making. And, and as you alluded to, most of those are unconscious choices, which is why I often quote Arnold Patton, who says, if you don't like what's happening in your life, look carefully at what you're choosing unconsciously. And I teach a concept called the pain teacher. I say, whenever pain shows up in your life, it's not wise to numb it or drug it unless you absolutely have to, to get through a, a crisis, such as an acute injury or an accident. It's best to be present with it and pay attention to what you're doing in your life that makes that pain worse. For example, if you keep drinking coffee and it's giving you a headache, well, the pain teacher is telling you to look carefully at your coffee consumption. But taking aspirin and continuing to drink coffee means you're still jamming the keyboard or hitting it with a hammer, so to speak. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so interesting. Um, and I, I so agree with, with where you're going there. You know, all of these things are messages. And when we can sit and get the message and the direction uh, and and act upon them, hey, that's what feedback is. If we look at if we look at our sensory nerve endings, hey, I live in Arizona and it's getting on summertime now, and so if I go outside without a shirt on, after a while, uh, my skin is going to give me the message, you know, hey, you better change your behavior, or else you're going to be hurting. And yeah. And so, but somehow when we get to an emotional thing, we are taught, I think, culturally and everything else uh, to avoid emotional distress. And if we watch any, any advertising, any TV commercial is all about, wow, you don't feel good. Um, here, do this and take this, buy this, get, a, get this, buy a boat, you know, all these different things. And basically the message says, hey, if I'm... Um, you know, if emotions went from zero to 10, zero being total despair, 10 being ecstasy, hey, if I'm at uh, eight and a half and below, I have to get rid of that. You know, I, I just have to totally, it's it's not appropriate. And those are the messages we get. Even if you look at uh, a, a mother and a child, you know, the child's crying and the mother says, oh, don't cry, don't cry. And meanwhile, the mother's just trying to placate the, the baby. But what the message that the mother's transmitting there is don't feel you should, right. you should not be feeling that way. It's That's not appropriate. So don't feel that way. So we get a lot of signals that say, how I'm feeling is not okay. And therefore, people just try to do anything they can to, to, to not feel that way, rather than try to decode the underlying message, which is just like my external uh, skin and, you know, tells me, hey, it's too cold outside, put on a coat, change your behavior. Well, my emotional information is that's my compass to navigate the world. Hey, if something feels good, I'm going to tend to want to move towards it. That's what's right for me and my soul. If something doesn't feel good, it, it's something that I, I, I need to look at those things. And somehow, I think many of us have lost track, lost confidence in our deep sense of our own intuition and what's right and not right for us. Well, absolutely. And, and, uh, you know, using your analogy of the baby there, and I'm going to dive into some of this a little later on, so I'll get more into it with you then. But the child also interprets that it's not safe to express their feelings. So they repress their emotional expression because they're conditioned to realize that it's often more painful to express 
their feelings openly. And as I'm sure you know, feelings buried alive never die. The uh, other issue that you alluded to there is people running, you know, being programmed by our culture and by the media and by the medical association to just, excuse me, run to a doctor or a therapist and take a pill for almost anything. And what I teach my students, which I think is critical for anybody, including addicts, is that, you know, the way we relate to ourselves in the world has a lot to do with the language we speak and what the words and the symbols mean, because that's how we make meaning. And in, in our culture, we use a treatment model. And if I say, Dean, I'm treating you to dinner tonight, who's paying? You are, of course. Yes. So when we go to a doctor or a therapist for treatment, we've got this linguistic based assumption that we're going to pay them money and they're going to take our pain away and our problems away. And we're going to get off the table and walk out and everything's going to be hunky dory. But clearly that approach is not working. So I teach my student, we don't use a treatment model. We use a coaching model and we don't do anything for the client that we can teach them to do for themselves. Or we just become an opiate, a facilitator of the pathology. And I have a saying that I use that's the motto for my holistic lifestyle coaching program. We don't treat the disease that has the person. We coach the person that has acquired a disease specifically to teach the students what it means to coach somebody to learn to be aware of and balance themselves and their lifestyle, or we're falling right back into the treatment model, which doesn't work very well unless you are in a head-on car accident, you need surgery. <laughs> you bet. I think, I think um, you know, a couple of things about that. I, I think that the, one of the, the complaints that I've heard about the 12-step model is, hey, I'm giving away my power. I'm, I'm powerless. I have no authority. I can't, you know, I, again, I, and I think that our model of, of helping people to be recovered is that I have to take responsibility. I'm exactly what you're talking about. It's me that I, nobody knows better for each person what's, what's right for them on the planet than they do when they're in balance. But I think in terms of this personal responsibility, one of the things that we uh, share here and and if we look at the medical model that we live in, in the United States in particular, which is a sickness model, not a, not, a, not a healthcare model, it's a sickness model. We manage sickness or manage symptoms. The, uh, there's a word, iatrogenesis, and iatrogenesis means death by medicine, and it's currently yeah. the third leading cause of death in the United States. And what that means is that, uh, for all the listeners that may not know, that, you know, hey, I have... I, come down with problem A and I die of complication B. So a way we can understand that is staph infection. You know, hey, I go to the hospital to get my appendix out. You know, I have to stay in there for a day or two for whatever. I develop staph. I think close to 40% of staph infection is now not treatable by antibiotics. I die. So that's an iatrogenic response. There's nobody at fault. There's no big, um, you know, no negligence. The doctor didn't leave the scalpel. It's the system itself. So medicine is now the third leading cause of death. It's mostly side effects of medication that is causing that. And that's why people, once they get to a certain age, they're expected to be on four or five medications because, hey, I take a medication that has a side effect. Now I take a medication for that side effect. And that cascades into now in my own chemistry 
experiment. But, um, and so I think if medicine is the third leading cause of death in the United States, the days of walking into a doctor and doing exactly what you say, say, hey, fix me, and taking whatever the guy hands you or the woman hands you, I think those days are need to be behind us now. Because well, they, yes, they do, and and it's just um, and and I think in defense of doctors, you know, I just want to be be clear, you know, look, um, medicine there it's influenced heavily by the pharmaceutical industry. These people get called on by these reps. They come in with a lot of charts and graphs and signed by very prestigious institutions, and you know, it says, hey, if uh, if you have a patient that has these symptoms, give them this, and and you're helping him. So a doctor, you know, a month later person walks in the door, has those symptoms, and the doctor says, wow, um, I know what to do about this, and I have all these heavy-hitting signatures up behind here, here's all this proof that this stuff works. I'm actually helping this client by giving them this medication, and, and that's how this goes on. So there's no villain here. It's the system itself has gone so far out of balance, uh, as, a, as our culture has, and, and I think that's got a lot to do with the epidemic that we're facing right now with mental health and addiction as well. Do you work in the health or fitness profession? What was your dream when you started? Did you want a career where you could really impact someone else's life in a profound way and the satisfaction of knowing that you do good and important work? When you watch your clients succeed, when you see them smash their PR finally living pain-free or fitting into their dream wedding dress? Did you feel that immense sense of being alive and rooted in your life's purpose? Our check train professionals feel that sense and they feel it often. And it's because they're mastering a powerful system of holistic health created by Paul Check, a system that gives them deep insights into human health and performance and the tools to help their clients reach their goals like no other system. Now you can learn that system yourself through the Czech Academy, the most structured, comprehensive, and affordable way to complete the entire Czech system of training. The Czech Academy structures all of Paul's books, correspondence courses, and live advanced training programs into a digestible monthly learning program, enabling you to absorb every drop of knowledge while still maintaining your own business. Plus, you'll be supported by a mentor, get business training, and have an entire community of passionate academy students on the same journey as you. That means you'll be able to implement everything you learn and grow your practice into a flourishing business that supports your dreams. It's all available to you, starting now, for an affordable monthly fee. Ready to apply? Visit us at checkacademy.com to get started. That's checkacademy.com. Now, back to Paul. Yeah, there, I, I, I understand everything you're saying, and I believe there's certainly an element of truth to that. I also feel, and you know, I've spent my entire career, I've been doing this work for 35 years, and a large percentage of it was spent working in a medical clinic with a surgical center and uh, orthopedic surgeons, neurosurgeons, you name it. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty well connected to, at one point I had 36 physicians as patients myself that were seeing me and or sending me their family members, often both. So having kind of a, an inside view of the whole thing, one of the things I've always found challenging and frustrating is that the doctors themselves see the same issues over and over not going away. 
But it's usually not until they're in a crisis that their own system can't handle that they actually start looking outside of their own box. So part of the challenge is that they suffer from, uh, you know, quite heavily programmed behavior themselves. And a good example of this is if you watch a number of documentaries on vaccination injuries, inevitably it won't take you long at all to find medical doctors whose own children were either killed or seriously debilitated by vaccinations. And only then did they start looking into whether or not what the AMA was telling them was true or what the CDC said was true. And I've seen several physicians in tears breaking down because they felt so lied to by the American Medical Association and the various corporations doing this kind of research. But my point is, is that the doctors are just like politicians and, and doctors are, um, they're a mirror of our culture and they're made of our culture. And the same things that are keeping the doctors from advancing medicine by being caught in programming and just not paying attention to the fact that their own patients aren't healing is the same thing stopping everybody from healing from addictions or eating disorders or whatever it might be. I, I agree with you. I, and this all boils down to um, our underlying beliefs, right? So these doctors, you know, we're looking at uh, the program. Hey, I'm, I'm watching TV. I'm, I'm seeing all these messages and we say, God, someone would have figured this out. If this stuff is so toxic Somebody would have figured it out, right? I'm seeing uh, all these, the, you know, and that's an assumption that's based on, it's, it's not based on anything other than conditioning. So I think that, um, you know, it's so interesting when we look at the definition of insanity. So that comes in uh, into play in a lot of recovery, right? So it's insane. Hey, I keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. So we can assign that to the addict pretty easily, right? Hey, you got high again. Were you expecting anything different? Well, no. And uh, But I think that that has to apply to treatment as well. And I, I can't tell you how many times, you know, another relapse, I walk in the door of a treatment center and I get handed my step one package again. Here it is, start over, do the same thing and you know, eventually we have to start to wonder where the insanity is. And so the model that we have of, of sickness and symptom management, I think is what we're, we're all trying to change and realize that the human being is so much more powerful and the technology of our bodies and the, the wisdom that is in every cell of our body um, has far more capacity than anybody at and any of the pharmaceutical companies to manage, to manage well-being. Yes. The reason I asked you about your childhood and if there was any traumas that might have been unresolved is, and I'll quote Jung, Jung says, all children are tasked with the unfinished lives of their parents. And in my work, I do a careful analysis of the father archetype, the mother archetype, the child archetype, the eternal child archetype, the victim, the saboteur, and the prostitute archetypes. And it's very rare that I don't hit pay dirt and find out where there's real challenges in the developmental period of childhood until a person typically leaves home. But an example of children being tasked with the unfinished lives of their parents, if a child announces to mom and dad that it wants to be an artist, 
and mom and dad are professionals, they might say, oh, no, you know, you can't do that. You've got to go to school to get a degree as a lawyer or a doctor. Or you, you might disgrace the family or if parents were, were too bottled up emotionally and didn't dance or didn't enjoy themselves, then the child is programmed with that model in order to uh, fulfill the unfinished lives of the parents. It, in metaphor, it needs to learn to dance and express itself or it's going to probably exemplify the same kind of genetic challenges that are in the family or, or some sort of health problem or addiction that's in the family. And uh, I'm curious, are, in your work, do you look into these developmental issues with people? Oh, yeah. You know, um, what's so interesting, th this is all part of the human experience. Whatever our parents didn't work out, they're going to pass it along to their children. And um, a way... And by the time that people leave, they're already programmed. So this happens at a very early age. If we look at where do, where do children get their beliefs or, you know, their way of looking at the world, most of that happens by the time they're eight years old when they're in that kind of theta state. If you look at, um, you know, the reason why that is, if you think about all the rules of a family, let alone the, the greater community and then the world, uh, you know, it would take somebody – a lifetime to learn all those rules if I had to sit down and read them in a book. So I watch my parents. I watch them. I'm, I'm being conditioned by them. I'm learning to please them. And all of their wounds are then being transmitted right to me. So this is, this is when people say, and we've all heard somebody say, I will never grow up to be like my mother or father. And you know, that's the invitation, you know, 30 years later, who are, I'm exactly like my father. And it's not like they have a change of heart. It's just that they've been programmed that way. So all of these unconscious patterns are handed down in the family. And we have to look at those because um, a lot of times we think it's just about us. Now we know there's all these studies that are out now that actually we pass memories down genetically. So not only, uh, you know, experience, but we're also passing down memories. So we're getting a lot of stuff transmitted right to us that we have no control over until we can see it and develop it later that that these uh, little snafus that come up become signals of that I have to start looking into these things and and explore in a much deeper way than than I think we have been we thought of it in the past yeah you used an interesting term snafu. food you know what it means I don't situation normal, all fucked up. <laughs> That's actually what it means. If you look it up in a dictionary. Nice. Uh, you know, one of the things that I've seen in my life, and it, and it definitely does happen. I've run across a number of cases in it of this, whether it be cancer or uh, any number of disease states or addictions is that every now and then I'd say probably one in 50 clients that I work with or patients is that you, you, I won't find a significant enough amount of information when I look through all the things that we've been discussing. Someone may have a quite well managed, you know, diet and lifestyle, or we'll call it for our doctors. They don't have a lot of family trauma, but they're really caught in some kind of an addiction or disease process. And so what I've uh, found, and this is my own take on it, I'm just curious what your opinion is, is that it's not unusual for a soul, that, especially a soul that's fairly evolved, to choose a life path 
that is quite challenging so they can, you know, in, get an internship in what they're actually here to help people in the world resolve. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I am, I'm in agreement with that. And, um, you know, I'm, uh, I'm very oriented towards the soul. Um, it's interesting in, in our, our work and in a lot of indigenous traditions, uh, they talk about the soul and soul sickness as being kind of the, the, the primary thing that goes wrong. Soul. So when I think about my soul, this is my sort of deepest, truest, most authentic part of who I am. And I think that um, it's my belief that our souls have been around. Um, I don't think this is my only experience in, in, of life. And I think that souls do come in with things that they need to learn. And we pick the clearest, fastest path. And, and so in my own life, um, I look at my own addiction as actually a wake-up call. It was, it, was, it was something that was calling me forth, right? And it actually turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me because it was the root of the century. It's, it's my, uh, it led me to my passion. And so I do think that souls incarnate with things to work out. I think that if people don't resonate with that, another way we can look at that is, hey, let's say that a person listening to this program doesn't believe in any of that. And hey, you just show up to life in this body and end in this body. But if life serves you lemons, you got to make some lemonade. And, and so, you know, so we can look at it one way or there. I happen to think it's a much deeper, broader uh, more, I, I think it's it's more complex than just this one life. If we look at now, uh, we see it a lot because of YouTube and those things. Look at these little kids that are piano virtuosos at age five and age three. You know where where did this come from? You know they're either grabbing it from the field or it's coming from a past life experience that they had. This is they're tapped into something broader than themselves. And I think that we all are to some capacity if we choose to to embody that and start digging. Uh, a lot of what ails people today is that they're programmed with this. If it's not measurable or weighable, it doesn't uh, exist. And I've had many students with that mindset in my class. And I, I just have a very simple question for them. How important is love in your life? Well, I've never had a scientist or a left brain or a scientific materialist student that doesn't say it's very important. I say, is there anything more important? No. Well, isn't it interesting? You cannot weigh and measure that, but it's extremely real. And that usually helps knock a scientific materialist into a, a different dimension of perception. Yeah. I, I like, I like that analogy a lot. And it's so interesting if, if we just look at science, you know, if we look at dark matter, whatever that is, we don't even know what it is, but um, it supposedly comprises, you know, 85% of the known universe and we can't even measure it. So right. 85% of what out, it's out there is unknown to us. And that's just in our own dimension, let alone other dimensions that might be happening. So I think if we get all bogged down into that, which we can measure, then, you know, we're really limiting ourselves. And, and again, people are looking for a more expansive experience in their lives that's why i think most people go to drugs is they're looking for more they're looking for god they're looking for they're looking for a deeper connection and and so 
what's wild about, um, you know, in, I'm much more interested in, in the quantum scientific world because it's all about probability and the unexplainable and, and that, wow, my thoughts and I, I am part of this thing and my thoughts and my actions actually affect those around me and I'm affected by, by those that are around me too. And we realize the intricate connection that we have. Isn't that what all the religions are talking about? Isn't that what we're looking for? And so, but somehow there's a disconnect intellectually when we try to intellectualize and contain something that can't be the unknowable, somehow we limit it and lose our connection to it. Yeah. Well, the nice thing about the quantum model is really the zero point field is a field of potential or possibility. And people that are caught in sort of the left brain scientific materialist way of relating, which is the basis of our education systems, unfortunately, think that things like talking to your soul or, or connecting to plant spirits or nature spirits or any of those things are impossible. And I often quote a, a beautiful quote by Aubrey Hepburn. She says, nothing's impossible. The word itself says, I'm possible. <laughs> yeah. Well, all these things are just, you know, things that we haven't quite figured out a mathematical formula uh, to. So it's so interesting. You know, you mentioned plant spirits. That's something I'm very connected to. If we look at, uh, if you look at, this substance called curare, which was a, a, a neurotoxin that they used in the medical field for a long time. I'm not sure if it's still used right now, but this is was has its origins in the jungle, and I think it's made of nine or ten different plants. And from my understanding, these plants they gather them, and you know there's hundreds of thousands of plant species in the jungle, and I'm going to select these ten, and then I have to boil it for 72 hours. And if I smell the fumes during that time, that will uh, cause this toxic effect and the person will die. But after it's all done, this paste, they can, uh, you can actually eat it. But if you get it in your blood, you'll become paralyzed. And that's how these guys, you know, um, like in the old Tarzan movies, when they shoot their darts, you know, and the, the person just drops dead. Well, that's what they're using. And so I asked the question, well, how did they know how to do that? Because the, the chances of doing that through trial and error, are statistically impossible. <laughs> yeah, it's the same with same with ayahuasca and many of the medicines. I'm actually a, a a Native American medicine man, spirit guide through the Native American Council myself, and I've conducted approximately 400 healing ceremonies with plant medicines. So I'm pretty hip to exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I am. Um, you know, I'm I'm a big proponent of plant medicine. And ayahuasca, the same thing. You know, I have the chikaruna and I have the ayahuasca. Out of hundreds of thousands of plants, uh, here's one that has DMT and here's one that has, a, <clears throat> you know, the MAO inhibitor so your stomach doesn't destroy it. What are the chances of combining those two medicines and, and those two plants? And so you ask the shaman or the people, you know, how did they do that? And they said, well, the plants told us. And, yes. And science rolls their eyes and, and, you know, okay, that's where the conversation ends. And, you know, I would ask the question, well, then you tell me how they did it, because I don't see any other way. And, and so the intelligence of life and the intelligence of the field, all this information is in the field, and we're connected to that field. And this is something that uh, is interesting in our, in our recovery model. You know, when we start to understand the energy body and 
that's a that's a very important part of what makes us us. It's also uh, kind of my antenna to the greater field. And this is, you know, when we talk about higher power, hey, we need a deeper connection to this field. That's our higher power. And I had been in many treatment centers where they would tell people that didn't really understand the concept of a higher power. They'd say, well, you know, just make the group your higher power, make the doorknob your higher power. And hey, man, if the doorknob's your higher power, you're in deep trouble, in my opinion, um, because there's such an expanse out there that that makes so many more things possible. And our connection, if we would just pay attention to it. The interesting thing is, um, because of our education and our condition, we don't have the neural networks for this thing. Um, and I, I share in, you know, uh, one of the groups that we do that we talk a lot about our energy body and our connection like this. You know, hey, everybody's got a middle toe or most people have a middle toe on their left foot. I can, I'm sitting here right now. I can bend my toes. And I, so I know that that middle toe works, but I can't bend it on its own. I can't move my middle toe independently of the other toes because I don't have the neural networks to do that. But if I spend time, I can learn how to do that. And that's what we have to do in terms of our connection to this greater field. We have to begin to pay attention to it so we can start to generate the neural networks in our brains so we can start to interact with it. And now that's when life starts to get pretty interesting. I think. Yes. In my holistic lifestyle coach training program, level three, the highest level, I teach my students how to connect to plants, trees, nature, spirits, stones of different types. And often they ask me, well, how, how is it possible to talk to a plant or a tree? And what I explained to them, I said, you know, if you look into genetics and pay close attention to the fact that what they call junk DNA actually turns out to be all the genes that we have in common with everything in the environment. We have something like 16% of the same genes as a daffodil and 23% of the same genes as a fly. If you actually look at what a human being is, we are the tip of the evolutionary sword. And what I tell them is what they call junk DNA just doesn't fit their model, but it's actually a history of everything that we've become on the way to being human. And since it is all, all life is an expression of the field, whenever we put our intention and our awareness on any living being or even a stone, then we're actually fusing our consciousness with that. And the genes that we have actually become the equivalent of going on Google and uh, asking for a translation program. So if I'm talking to a tree and I just empty myself and I say to the tree, what are you good for? And all of a sudden what rises is, is a picture of somebody rubbing a painful elbow. And then I say to the tree, are you saying you're, you're good for an acute injury, like smashing your elbow? And I get a yes. Then because I've emptied myself and I know that I'm not doing thinking, I can perceive the images and the feelings and the, and the messages that are arising and interact with the tree. But the point I'm making is medicine has this model that says we've got all this junk DNA. But as a shaman, I look inside myself and ask my own soul, what is the mechanism of translation? And that's what I'm taught through that interaction. And I, I think that if people just started looking at the research and seeing, you know, we've got so many of the genes, you know, we got 90, what, 98% of the same genes as a chimpanzee. We've got 
so many of the same genes as mice. I mean, if you really look at it, we have the genetic means of communicating with almost anything. And I see the genes as antenna systems that basically act to pick up, to receive and send vibrational frequency. And that's everything that's in the universe is made of vibration. Yeah, and I think we've, we've been taught to shut all of these systems down. If we look at kind of the mechanistic world of Newtonian physics and, hey, that's what our medical model is based on, sort of the parts of our body uh, are kind of like a clock. Something goes wrong, I can just take out that gear, replace it, and, hey, sew them back up and you're all set. And there's some value to that, of course, and but it's missing the bigger picture of the interconnectedness not only of our the of our internals, but our connectedness to the greater field, uh, and that's yes. Again, that's what's influencing, in my opinion, when we look at what's some of the things that are going on. And and if I if recovery doesn't talk about the state of our world today, and as an influence, of course, it's unconscious. Where people are typically so stressed out. I have a job. I have kids, I have mortgage, I have visa bill, I have, you know, soccer game, all the things that they have to get to. But what's interesting is we on a soul level feel all that's going on in the world. You know, when, yes, we do. when another species uh, becomes extinct, when we drop bombs on another nation, yes, I'm not aware of it because I'm so busy, but on a soul level, on an unconscious level, I feel that. And I think that so many people are trying to fit into a dysfunctional society and and I think being normal in a dysfunctional society is not necessarily a good reflection of what it's like to be healthy. So um, our our culture is also out of balance. You know, there's this as above, so below. Uh, this is true, and that's a reflection of the fractal nature of the universe. Hey, the universe is just repeating patterns of energy, and so are we. And so, you know, all that's going on on the micro is also happening in the macro. And vice versa. So I think people are influenced by the field much more than they have been taught. And once we start to understand that, and then I can start to moderate that relationship, I have more power than, than I ever thought that I could. I agree. I think a lot of the uh, issues with anxiety, depression, and the addiction that comes from trying to medicate them is exactly what you said. We're tapping into the collective unconscious and we're aware of the genocide, the rape, the murder, the abuse, the violence, the, you know, all the stuff that uh, we've been culturally conditioned to turn over to the state or to the government so we don't have to worry about. But when we're, you know, going to the Middle East and pretending that we're going there to create peace, but we're really going there to steal oil and resources at a, level below the conscious radar, we're all tapped into that. And I think it, it creates a huge amount of uh, emotion in us that people don't consciously know where it's coming from. So they end up getting treated medically for what is actually something that we could uh, resolve with spiritual practice, such as meditation and spending time in nature and learning to calm our minds. And I know that, you know, I've been a regular practitioner of meditation, Tai Chi and Qigong for a very long time. I was introduced to meditation at age 12 when my mother joined the Self-Realization Fellowship, which is Paramahansa Yogananda's teaching. And I've had many experiences where I felt deep, deep pain 
because I was tapping into the pain of humanity and the pain in nature. And I think that's what, you know, our tribal systems gave us a system of attenuation. You know, you think of a wheel, it attenuates. If you take a bicycle wheel that has 32 spokes, if you hit a bump, it attenuates the force through the 32 spokes so that the, the load is shared. But with the breakdown of our family and tribal systems, we don't have a system of attenuating our stress. And as we become more and more divided as uh, nations, then we break the wheel. And I think that uh, we, we really at some point have to return back to seeing that the world is a medicine wheel, but we, we are the ones that are responsible for keeping the spokes balanced. Yeah, that's a that's a beautiful analogy, Paul. It really is. And, you know, it, it's so interesting. We look at the, the young people that are coming into the world today. And, you know, when you think about it, uh, these young people think of, think about the, the world that they're being born into. You know, you can't eat the food. The food's all toxic. I can't drink the water. The water's all toxic. I can't breathe the air. The air's all toxic. I am going to be strapped with debt that I'll never be able to pay off in my lifetime, but I had nothing to do with that was actually taken from me fraudulently. Uh, all of these things. And then they start to kick up a fuss and they'll be corrected and medicated and, 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 you can imagine how painful that is. And when I don't have somebody to help me put that into context, I, I remember, uh, you know, some years ago we had a young man and he was so angry. You know, this, this guy was angry and you know, I would sit and talk with him and I'd be so, what are you so angry about? Of course, when I have stress, I'm going to assign it. This is what we do. We assign it to something in my external world so I can avoid it and know how to manage it. Um, so that's my parents. It's my this. It's my that. And when we actually sat down and talked about kind of the state of the world, all of a sudden he had a context for all of this unresolved emotion that he was having. And it made sense to him. You know, all of a sudden he realized that he wasn't crazy, that, that he had that, like how he was feeling was somehow validated. And all of a sudden that he was able to change his whole, begin the process of changing perception. I, I like that expression that you used a little while ago in our conversation. And that's what our whole treatment philosophy is about. This is what the whole process of the sanctuary is about, is having a perceptual shift that I can begin to look at the world in a different way and not just manage my external circumstances, but actually be different. And when I can, uh, you know, what we look at, it's like, look at your life. But your life is the printout of whatever programs you've got running in your unconscious mind. So if you don't like something in the printout, we got to go to the program. And when we got to go to the program, then I can begin to change my belief systems, which will ultimately then affect my perception. And that's what we're looking for is a perceptual shift. Exactly. So Dean, um, you know, I, I see that there are many forms of addiction that entangle people's lives today that range from addictions to drug, to work, to sex, pornography, anger, violence, video games, ideologies or isms, exercise addictions, power addictions, control addictions, avoidance addictions, fear-based thinking, money stealing, adrenaline, and more. I'm wondering when, uh, when you look at all these addictions, do you work with only drug addictions at the sanctuary or what are you equipped to work with there? Well, actually all of it, Paul, what's, what's interesting is that, um, and we say this to every person that comes here, what you're coming here for is not what you think you're coming here for, because these are all symptoms. 
So whether I, uh, and many of those things that you actually just listed are condoned by our culture. If we look at work addiction, for example, hey, um, you work 16 hours a day, you're like the, you know, you're respected in your community. Wow, look at Paul, man, he's really, uh, what a hardworking guy. They don't realize that you know, you've got the same underlying avoidance issue as the heroin addict next door that's getting high for 16 hours a day that we you know, keep our kids away from. So it's really what's underneath all of that. And so when we look at the, the drivers of addiction or the root causes, that's what we're looking at. And then there are zillions of imbalances that will come up, that long list of what you uh, put down there. One of the one of the big things is prescription drugs. You know, it's so interesting that just because you get it from a doctor doesn't make it any less addictive. So no, yeah, exactly. Whatever you know, whatever we're gonna when we're in discomfort, we're gonna do something to avoid that. Again, we avoid pain, and that then turns into an addiction. So for us, really, uh, it doesn't matter what the external ramification what the external expression of the addiction is what we are looking at is the underlying things that are going on the root cause so uh that leads to my next question which is i rarely see people with one addiction they almost always comes in come in groups have you ever uh, observed patterns that uh, the the heroin addict has typically got an addiction to x or the workaholic has got a, also a correlating addiction to y well, you know, if we look at very rarely does is addiction a standalone thing because they again they'll imbalance creates more imbalance. So what we see a lot is, hey, um, an alcohol guy is going to have depression, and that where do these other than mental diagnoses come in? So re really, um, you know, everybody's got an addiction to their belief system. So that's <laughs> we're going to get into that. That's coming up. <laughs> you know, that's, where, that's where it all starts. So we all share that addiction in common. Hey, what I think to be true, I'm pretty committed to that. And hey, that's uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. That's what keeps me safe. That's what allows me to navigate in the world. And uh, that's why people get so upset when we talk about things that are controversial. Right? So that's why they say, hey, don't talk about religion or politics at party because you know, that gets people fired up because it challenges their belief system. And so, <laughs> um, so most people I, have I, more than one thing going on. I tell people all the time, if your belief system's worth living, it's worth challenging. Well, I, I like that. And you know, what's in, so interesting about our belief system. We get so uh, connected to being right or, or that my beliefs are in fact valid. And, all of our beliefs are going to go by the way of one of two things are going to happen. We're either going to get rid of them and replace them with a better belief as we learn something new. So if we look at, hey, the earth used to be flat and now uh, somebody took a picture from space or whatever, boy, that's my new belief. That makes sense to me. So I'm going to discard my old belief or my belief is going to evolve into a higher order of itself. So uh, I think about love in that way. Hey, what I think and, and hold true about love now, I'm hoping next year will be greater than what I'm holding right now. So it will evolve into a, a greater uh, expression of itself. So it's so interesting why we are so convicted and holding on to our beliefs because they're only going to change anyway. <laughs> right? Yeah. 
Well, one of the things that we haven't done yet, which I'd like to to do with you, is define what an addiction is. And I've got a couple of definitions I wanted to share. One's from the American Society of Addiction Medicine, and they uh, define an addiction as, excuse me, as follows. Addiction is a primary chronic disease. Excuse me, um, I just ate breakfast and it's bouncing up here as I'm talking. Uh, Addiction is a primary chronic disease of brain reward, motivation, memory, and related circuitry. Dysfunction in these circuits leads to characteristic biological, psychological, social, and spiritual manifestations. This is reflected in individual uh, pathology pursuing reward and relief or relief by substance and or other behaviors. Another addiction I got out of one of my favorite books, which we'll talk about in a bit, Addiction is a pathological relationship to any mood-altering person, thing, or substance, or activity that has life-damaging consequences. I personally define addiction as any repeated behavior that does not produce the results you want and ultimately limits freedom. I'm wondering if you have a definition that you work with. Well, in, in, in its simplest form, you know, addiction is where I'm, I'm doing something that I don't want to do regardless of the outcome. So I think it's a synthesis of all of those things. I, I think your first definition, you know, sounds sounds very technical. At the end of the day, really an addiction is an imbalance where I, I am doing something and it's it's got a cost that's that's it's got it's exacting a high price in my life. I th- Thus limit, limiting freedom. Yeah. And I think, though, on the other side, what it occurred to me one day, because I, I was giving a talk and I looked up these definitions of addiction and I'm at addiction conference. But I actually think that addiction can be looked at as also a wake up call, because so many times in our lives, you know, we can rationalize our way out of a lot of our highest good. Uh, by saying things like, hey, you know, when the kids are uh, off in college, then I'll go and do this thing. When my IRA is funded, then I'll do this. Uh, when when this happens, then I'll leave this toxic relationship. So I can rationalize my way uh, out of having to make hard decisions in the moment. But when you have a good addiction, it's coming for you. And so you're going to have to reconcile this thing one way or another. And in my opinion, you know, there's only three ways out of a a juicy addiction. And one is that it's going to take you down, whether that's all at once, hey, I have an accident and I lose my life, or whether it's a slow, painful process, people that die of alcoholism, that's a very challenging way to die. Um, And it's it's a slow death, or I overcome the thing. Um, Yes. And or or I can stay in recovery. So I guess there's there's a another way and I can stay in that recovery model and continue to kind of manage my externals and that works for some people. But I think in the model that we're using is, Hey, I want to get the lesson out of this thing and transcend it. And that's what I've done in my own life. I don't consider myself an addict, which is an interesting thing. If I walked into uh, any prominent treatment center with my files and I, you'd be an addict. I would be an addict. You know, I have two banker boxes of files. I kept every file that I ever got from treatment. So I have two of them packed full, 30 years worth of addiction stuff. And if I walked into one of those centers and I plunked them down on the desk and I said, you know, I'm not an addict, they would look at me and say, oh my God, you are a sick man. 
you're in denial. But I can just tell you, it doesn't inform me. It doesn't live in me. I've grown a body that doesn't, that I'm not motivated by it. And interestingly enough, this is how I spend all day, every day. And I still don't think about it in that way. So yeah, for me, addiction was a big wake up call that my life needed to take another turn. That there was something more for me. Yes. Well, your three approaches there correlate quite beautifully with what I teach when I'm teaching my students or my patients that are having relationship problems to persons, places, or things about the four things you can do when there's an, a relationship problem. Because an addiction is a relationship. You have a relationship with alcohol or a relationship with work or a relationship with pornography. Uh, whenever there's a subject-object relationship, there there is a relationship. And the four things that I tell people you can do with a relationship problem is, number one, work on yourself. Two, work on the relationship. Three, do nothing. And yesterday equals tomorrow. And four, get out of the relationship. So it correlates quite nicely with the three things you just mentioned. Yeah, yeah. You know, in my work... Uh, my, you know, I specialize, I really built my reputation by dealing with medical failures. When I got out of the 82nd Airborne Division and, and came here to California to do my work, I got licensed as a sports massage therapist. Then I got licensed as a holistic health practitioner, which is really the license that I operate under today, which in California means you can use any holistic or natural means to help people with anything, which I like that because it's quite a loose, you know, uh, license. It gives me a lot of latitude. But I've become successful by using the knowledge I gained as a mechanic and working on in uh, with hydraulic systems. I was I repaired weapon systems in Cobra helicopters, so I had a deep study of electronics, but I learned how to analyze systems. And I grew up on a farm, which is a bunch of different systems interacting with each other. And so I made the habit, I would get people that would come to me that, you know, it had seen 15, 20, 30 doctors, multiple surgeries. And I noticed right away that, you know, they've seen 10 neurologists, we don't need to go down that route, or they've seen 10 chiropractors, it's probably not that. So I developed a system of looking at how systems interact and what's causing what. And when I started analyzing people's belief systems, I almost always would let, would be led back to some belief about what God wants or what God expects. And a lot of the patients that I was working with were claimed atheist or agnostic. And I had to remind them, you're in a Christian culture. All you got to do is look at the names of the roads, the holidays, the, the legal system. You can track almost all of this back to religious programming. And I've actually got a very good a couple of books, but one of my favorites one is a book titled When God Becomes a Drug, and it's about God as an addiction, and it's a study of people's beliefs and basically how so much of the beliefs that we actually are acting out consciously or unconsciously relate to religious programming. And I remember my, my, my mother was a Christian scientist before she became a yogi, and I remember being a kid sitting in Sunday school hearing about how God is love, but then singing onward Christian soldiers marching off to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. And I found it very, very scary and constantly being told I would burn in hell if I touched my genitals or did this or did that, yet being told God was love. And it, it really was disconcerting. And it actually left me as a child thinking, I'm scared because if, if, if adults can't, 
see this. And whenever I'd ask these kinds of questions, I would just get shut right down. I wouldn't even, wouldn't, I wouldn't get an answer. I would just get reprimanded. And so when my mother became a member of the Self-Realization Fellowship and I was able to talk to the monks, I always got beautiful answers. And I remember a, a profound experience. The first time I went to a Self-Realization Fellowship temple, the first thing they did was begin the ceremony with a prayer. And the prayer started off with Jesus Christ, Paramahansa Yogananda, Sri Yukteswar, Lahiri Mahashai, Babaji, saints and sages of all religions, we humbly bow to you all. And the instant I heard those words, it had a very powerful healing effect on me because I realized I was now in a place that had consideration of all the different belief systems, concepts, and ideas in the world, but wasn't necessarily trying to force you into a given box. So with that preamble, I'm wondering... Uh, what's what have you seen when it comes to beliefs about God and religious programming as a source of addictions in general? Well, I think if we look at um, and, and you've hit some some solid points, a lot of people think that just because I don't have I don't practice religion that somehow I'm outside of that model. And so we have to look at the mythology of our Western world compared to the mythology of everywhere else on the planet, more traditional societies, uh, the wisdom traditions. And, and so if we look at, hey, um, we go back to the original story of Adam and Eve, and hey, Adam and Eve are in the garden. Everything is great, right? You know, life it just can't be any better than this. God says, look, you guys do whatever you want. Um, just don't go over there and eat from the tree of knowledge. And hey, now any any parent that has a child that knows that, hey, if you tell your child, you know what, you, you have the whole house to yourself, just don't look in that closet over there. Um, <laughs> it's you know what's a, gonna happen next. You know what's gonna happen, right? So it's a little bit of a setup, you know, we were sort of set up. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, we eat from the, to the tree, so that's Eve. And so, you know, cursed be the earth because of you, woman. And women. Right, woman, and so now we have a uh, you know an aggressive relationship with the feminine, which includes the earth, um, because the earth is feminine, and yes. we, we look at women throughout the history since the last couple of thousand years, the feminine hasn't fared so well, and and so then you know we've been kicked out of the Garden of Eden, um, basically born in sin. We're born dis. Uh, Dis, we're born tarnished in some way. You know, we're not good enough. And I think that permeates us. Um, you know, one of our core wounds that, that we've identified is this thing of there's something wrong with me. And I think that that when we, when we look at people, you know, when they really get honest down deep, there's a lot of people that feel defective in some way. Hey, I'm not good enough. We compare ourselves with people on TV and uh, supermodels and all that kind of stuff. And so I think like inherently there's something wrong. I'm not good enough. And that comes right from, right from that myth. I'm kicked out of the garden. You know what? You really messed up and therefore, hey, you're out. You have sinned. You have messed up and there's nothing you're going to do about it. And so we look at that. Um, we look at, so I think that religion, again, it, it, it sure has affected us. All thing, and I, I don't want to villainize religion in particular, 
But if we look at any kind of institution that is, you know, that, that is very strict, um, inherently it's going to be limiting in some ways. And yes. So, you know, and Hey, I, I don't have a strong connection to, I've studied religion worldwide. I, I don't practice a specific religion, but I, you know, I find it hard to believe that, that Jesus Christ would come down and, uh, cast the Dalai Lama off to hell because he didn't necessarily believe in the same paradigm as, as people that are Christians. Um, I'm not saying that any is better or worse. So I like to avoid that particular standpoint, but um, you know, I think we're all trying to get to the same place. And if we would stop putting, you know, making the other uh, stop othering people like they're different than me Hey, all these religions are looking for one thing and that's connection, right? And that's love. And whether they're successful or not, I think, you know, any institution that reaches a certain size has to spend a lot of its energy maintaining itself. And that's just the nature of institutions. It's, it's all institutions fall in that category. So when that begins to happen, then there's a price to pay. And I think that that has influenced us again, most of, most of the time unconsciously, you know, it's interesting. Uh, we've had plenty of people that have had direct trauma as a result of things that have happened in churches and other places. So I think that it's, it is a big influence on our culture right now. Yes. You know, I have a few comments I'd love to share with you and the listeners because I've spent a lot of my life studying world religion and everything to do with it because my work, as I said, kept bringing me back to this. And I, I have a saying for my students, if you have a, a patient with a knee problem, it's important to remember that the knee of someone practicing Hinduism is different than the knee of a Christian is different than the knee of a Muslim is different than the knee of a Buddhist. And they look at me and go, well, what do you mean by that? The anatomy is the same. I say, yes, but how and why they're using their knee and what led to the injury isn't the same because all actions are the results of beliefs. Actions are behaviors. So one of the things I found fascinating is, is you know, Shankara, who was a, are you familiar with Shankara? I'm not. Shankara was a, a Hindu philosopher sage who at eight years of age began walking all over India on foot by himself looking, seeking out spiritual masters and gurus and challenging them to debates. And he never lost a debate. And Shankara said, no man can understand scripture until he's enlightened. And when he's enlightened, he does not need scripture. And the beauty and the truth of that is, as I've shared with many of my students and patients, if you walk into churches and temples all over the world, you will have a very hard time finding anyone in a Sunday school who's programming children that is enlightened. And therefore, you're falling into the trap of personal interpretations of Scripture. And Scripture cannot be easily interpreted at that level. So what you get is a lot of false translations. And to prove this, and I've done this countless times, I've said, okay, who in this classroom is a Christian? And, and this ranges from audiences as big as 500 people, and piles of hands will go up. And then I'll say, okay, which of you can tell me the actual meaning of the words Adam and Eve? So far, not one single person has ever been able to tell me what those words actually mean. So I have to share with them 
Adam means creature of the earth. In Arabic, it means creature of the earth of earthly slime. And Eve means life force. I say, do you guys realize that that means exactly the same thing as yin and yang in Taoist speak? Yin, the feminine, Eve, yang, the masculine, that which is expressed, or in David Bohm's model, the explicate relative to the implicate. And it means that this is the very creative forces of life. And to help people through this, I often get Christians in my classes that'll start going at me like preachers and quoting Bible passages. So I highlight to them that there's four levels of scriptural interpretation, which I I spent years studying Houston Smith's work, and this is where I learned this from. The four levels of interpreting scripture are number one, which is the lowest quality of interpretation, is literal. Number two is ethical, which means my group's belief against your group's belief. Thus, you have the concept of the chosen ones. Number three, so getting close to the best, is allegorical, which means when you're reading scripture, it's telling you a story that points to a meaning that may not actually be in the words, just like reading poetry. But you have to have a fair bit of brain power to understand allegory and poetry. And most people are too programmed to actually see deep enough into scripture but interestingly, the highest level of scriptural interpretation is inspirational. So when we have truly wise people teaching scripture, it, scripture is a means of inspiring people to live and love more fully. But over and over again, repeatedly, almost like clockwork, when I work with people that have addictions, I see belief systems that are based on literal and ethical interpretations of scripture that pit them against themselves and against other people. And the pain of that usually can't be attenuated in the family because the family carries the same belief system and the same kinds of pain. So it's kind of like going to a drug addict for drug addiction counseling. It never works. So, you know, these things are, are very, very real. And, and unfortunately, a lot of my students don't like the fact that I get into religion. But I say, look, my job and your job, if you're here as a student of mine, is to identify the etiology of what's driving a person's behaviors that are ultimately leading to imbalances in those four doctors and the six foundation principles that I teach, which are nutrition, hydration, sleep, breathing, thinking, and moving. And when you look at the psyche, you can't separate thoughts, feelings, and emotions from the body. The psyche is a rainbow bridge that goes from the transcendent unknowable called God at the top to matter at the bottom, and every part of it's interacting with every other part of it. And I explained to them, you, you know, it's your beliefs that make you eat or not eat, exercise or not exercise. It's your beliefs and your emotions that determine how you breathe and how you move and when you move and how much you move. So if we avoid the concept of religious programming, when research shows 85% of the world population claims religious affiliation, then we're ignoring the fact that our culture is indoctrinated into what I call corporate religion, which is what you were referring to, industrialized religion. But I also tell people I have nothing against religion. The word itself means religio, which means to link back or to reconnect. And ultimately, we're at a time now in the evolution of humanity, if we don't connect to each other, we're going to simply destroy the planet and each other. So I think these are things that really uh, are important to not only addiction, but any kind of chronic illness or injury that keeps happening because that what what are they are they're expressions of beliefs and behaviors 
But moving to my next question, and, and thanks for sharing your, your viewpoints on that. Um, are you familiar with Angeles Arian? No, I'm not. Oh, man, you would, you would love her work. Uh, for anyone that's not familiar with her, she recently died. She was an anthropologist and a shaman who was just incredibly tapped in, uh, you know, truly enlightened. Um, there's a radio show that's been around forever. I don't even know if it's still running called New Dimensions Radio, and the host is Peter Toms. But if you search New Dimensions Radio uh, and then go on their site and search Angeles Arian, you'll find at least three interviews, which I think you'll find fascinating. But Angeles Arian was an anthropologist and shaman, and she traveled all over the world. But I can't remember. It was either 60 or 100 different countries and and cultures all over the world she visited specifically trying to identify what were the root causes of addiction. And after many, many years of research, she synthesized it down to the four causes, which are not in any hierarchical order. She, she found that intensity, which means a person who's raised in an intense environment, perfectionism, the need to know and focusing on what's wrong were ultimately the four things that triggered most addictions. I'm just curious what your thoughts on that are. Well, I would t I would tend to I, I would tend to agree. Um, if we if we look at if we just kind of break these things out, hey, intensity, you know, that's that's the driver of memory. So things that are intense, if we think about. Um, Hey, where was everybody during 9-11? Most people remember where they were because it was a very emotionally charged, very intense experience. Very So those things tend to land deeper for us. And yes. um, the perfectionism piece, you know, it's interesting. We see a lot of that. And that sets up this dynamic where, hey, uh, a lot of people can uh, forgive other people. You know, people are in group or whatever. And, hey, I can forgive everybody around me, but I can't forgive myself, right? Um, that means I'm holding myself to a different standard that I'm holding the rest of the population of earth for. And, and so I don't give myself, I don't, I'm not allowing myself to be human and, and, and kind of all the messiness of being human, you know, somehow I'm, I'm not allowing that for myself. And of course that's a recipe for disaster, you know, need to know what is, is this thing, you know, that keeps us safe, but there are so many things that are unknowable that actually the need to know precludes us from the great mystery it precludes us from God. This, this word, you know, all these religions, everybody trying to know God better. Well, God is unknowable. Amen. And so, but I can, I can experience it though. I can't know it, but I can have an experience of it. And so my need to know is going to limit that very thing that I'm looking for. And of course, focusing on what's wrong, you know, Hey, um, anything that, Whatever you put your attention, that's where your energy goes. So the more I'm focusing on what's wrong, the more I'm going to drive things that are wrong and find things that are wrong. Um, so I, I, I would tend to agree with those things. The way I looked at it was a little bit different. And, and I looked at basically uh, people come here to the sanctuary with all kinds of diagnoses, you know, everything under the sun. Most people that come here have a, a plethora of diagnoses to their credit. And, uh, and they become drivers of belief, of course, and self-fulfilling prophecies. But underneath those, we came up with five things that tend to go wrong with people. And uh, probably the granddaddy of them all is separation. And that means that somehow, you know, God has forsaken me. 
uh, I'm, I'm different. I'm, I don't belong. That can show up in a lot of different ways, but somehow, you know, this whole organizing principles of the universe apply to everybody but me. And so I feel excluded in some way. Um, unworthy. There's something wrong with me. You know, inherently I'm defective in some way. Um, I've been abused. Hey, um, abuse, abandonment, betrayal, stress, trust. Those are wounds that we've seen that, are, that tend to be like these archetypal wounds that we all hold in some way. So I think that um, that's just how I've looked at it in, in this art, more archetypal wound, you know, and it seems in just our, our sharing, invariably when people come, they are talking about their addiction or whatever got them here. But then as we start to get down to the underlying beliefs or the underlying causes, the underlying I, I guess these wouldn't be causes. These are more like embodiments of what's wrong. Uh, we always come to this handful of things that, that we all share. Yes. Uh, I'm curious, having been to a number of different cultures yourself, have you found that uh, different cultures have different approaches to addiction than we do in the Western culture? Well, um it's, yeah, you know, and if if we look at uh, the way people look at at life all around the world is typically a, a reflection of then how they would look at addiction. So there are typically Western cultures, modernized cultures look at addictions the same way that we do, and more indigenous or wisdom traditions look at addiction as as an imbalance, something uh, it's soul sickening. There's something. It's calling me to look at something in my life. And, and so if we, we can generalize it kind of in that way. Yeah. Now, you know, we've been talking and, and uh, using words that are commonly uh, traded, but without a clear understanding of what they mean. Um, I'm curious, you, you've highlighted a, a little bit what your concept of soul was. What is your definition of mind and spirit? Well, you know, the, the mind, the mind is different than the brain. So, um, you know, the mind and what I mean by that is we, we look at, hey, where does an idea come from? And I, I had this experience, as I'm sure many of our listeners have, you know, I'll be noodling around on something, you know, really, uh, really working out an idea. I'll go to a conference and I'll hear a speaker talking about it. And I'll say, you know, what? that was my idea. And then I wonder, well, wait a second, was that his idea? And I was just kind of tapped into it. Or did this thing exist somewhere else and we're both kind of tapped into it? So the mind is this kind of greater thing. Uh, the brain actually is, is this antenna to the mind. Yes. And for, for us, um, what we're really concerned about is the unconscious brain. You know, that the limbic brain, that part of us where all of our unprocessed hurts, wounds, beliefs, all of our stuff lurks. And this is where the program is because it's all unconscious. And so that's where for us, that's where we're looking at in the mind, this unconscious place. Um, and spirit, it's interesting if, um, you know, when I look at spirit, I think about spirit as the totality of everything and ever, the totality of everything, the underpinning of everything is energy. So everything is energy and um, we actually have an energy body. And the way we can understand that is, Paul, you know, um, 
many of us have are old enough to have driven underneath high voltage power lines when we were younger and get static on our radio. Yes. Happens too much in the digital age now, but uh, what's happening there, that phenomenon is, hey, electricity going down a line creates a field around it and everything that's in the field is connect is influenced by the field. Well, every nerve in your body is uh, electrically generated. So your spinal column becomes this high voltage power cable and we have this field of energy around us and that field is interacting with a larger field and this is how we get a lot of our signals from the universe. So spirit, I'm... I'm, the way I personally look at it, it's a pretty big topic, is, is the whole totality of the information of the universe. My spirit is my personal antenna, my energy body to connect to that because most of that information is coming in unconsciously through this antenna. So the quality of that antenna, um, you know, it, it's just like, hey, if I, if I have a really pure signal, I have a very, very clear music or whatever I'm listening to. If my antenna is rusty, then, hey, uh, my signal is not going to be so clear. You know, I get a little static on the radio. And we have this personal, this personal spirit, our personal energy body, and that is affected by our nervous system, which, of course, is affected by trauma and drug use. So most of the time when people are walking in the door, their antenna to spirit is, is not functioning to capacity. So therefore, it's, it's kind of like looking through a window that's dirty Hey, I can still see what's going on out there, but I'm I'm not I'm not privy to the all the different nuances of all the colors and all the experiences. And so I think of our energy body the same way. Yeah, it's the uh, metaphorical strawberry milkshake in the keyboard of your genetic piano. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, you know I've because these are such elusive words. I've spent a lot of time investigating them. I love the alchemy, the expression of alchemy. They, you know, define soul as the receptive and spirit as the flow of energy and information. And one of the analogies I read in one of my alchemy books, which was quite neat, is they talked about in the old days when they used to use wax seals, like if the king or a prince or royalty was sending an envelope, it had a very unique wax seal. And they could tell that the envelope had been opened because the seal was broken and you can't reheat it because it destroys the imprint. So they describe, they describe a spirit as the information, the symbol, and the soul as the wax that receives it. So I really help people understand just by saying spirit is the flow of energy and information, which everything in the universe that we can experience is a flow of energy and information. And I define soul as consciousness within. It's, it's what's inside of you that's aware and having the experience of making love or the taste of your food or the joy of breathing. But what your perception of that experience is and what's available to you in the environment is the flow of spirit. Um, so those are just a couple of different ways that I share. One of the things that... Um, I've observed in my career and, and uh, having studied shamanism extensively, the shaman often say that the more traumatized a person is, the more potent their healing power is when they heal because all the energy that they've had entangled in their wounds and their complexes becomes free energy that they can now use to help other people with. I'm wondering if you've seen 
cases where, well, you're a living example of it, uh, but have you observed that when people that have a lot of trauma actually heal, they be, they have more potential to be powerful healers? Yes, yes, we have. You know, a big part of our process here is that we turn our wounds into wisdom. And I think that's the hero's journey. That's exactly what we're talking about. Um, yes. And that quote that, that you just, that in the shamanic view, it's like, hey, our, our deepest, darkest things are the key to what are going to be our greatest attributes. So it's interesting to, for me uh, in, my, in my journey, hey, 30 years worth of addiction, 20 years in treatment, and I, you know, I have pain and suffering stories like you would not believe. I don't think about any of that. One day I'm in a treatment center and I'm thinking to myself, you know, none of this is working and I'm not the only one that this isn't working for. And then all of a sudden I realized, wait a second. All of this has been my training. You know, I've got, I know more about this topic than any counselor I've sat in front of because I've been all over the world and I paid attention to every moment and treatment because I wanted to get better. And when that landed, I'm like, that was my training. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go create a treatment center. And when that something shifted in me and I, I have not ever really told the war story. You know, as so many times I've been, we've all been to 12-step meetings and we hear people that are sober for a long time and, you know, blessings, no judgment about whatever anybody's doing. But I thought about, well, when do we stop telling these war stories? When am I de done being defined by my past? Yes. When we can then take the past, get the medicine from the past, that's going to then fuel who I'm becoming. So I don't consider myself a guy with all these, you know, and, and this is the kind of the psychological approach it's like this this and this happened and this is why i am the way i am today hey there's some validity to that but what we want to know is hey who am i becoming you know yes. who are paul and dean today hey we're guys we're reinventing ourselves right and what are we going to use we're going to use the power from our past not not the, our wounded story but our wisdom story so I, yes. I think that that is the keyest part of actually being recovered moving from recovery to being recovered is by taking the medicine of all of those traumatic experiences and, hey, what did you learn? You know, what? that's your unique life path. It's like going to Harvard. Hey, what's your particular curriculum? Well, your soul incarnated, your life path is your particular curriculum. If we don't get the lesson, the teacher is going to keep coming. So let's get the lesson, and then the teacher doesn't have to keep coming. We'll invite in a whole bunch of new lessons. And I think that's what you were just referring to. Yes, you know, and, and I think I look at my own life and I and I've had a chance now to hear more about yours, which I really appreciate. And what I've found is that as traumatic as a life can be and as painful as a life can be, and we know there's plenty of trauma and pain in most families, what I've found through my own life and observing, you know, 35 years of patients that I've worked with is that if we actually get to a point where we're able to listen and observe the guidance that's around us, whether it be, you know, a book falling off a shelf or a friend saying, hey, I tried this approach and it really helped, or a dream that informs us, or a friend of ours saying, hey, I'm going off to the jungle to do a shamanic ceremony with ayahuasca. Do you want to join me? That ultimately we can reach the place where we realize that the universe or the world, if you want, is actually guiding us towards our own resolution. But it's really just a matter of getting to the point in our life where we have the presence, the awareness, 
and the receptivity to sort of see where the pain teacher is pointing us. And instead of numbing it out, follow the cookie trail. And then we ultimately get to the point like both you and I have where everything that once was confusing and seemingly meaningless turns out to be exactly the experience we needed to become the person we are and enter the world of being an elder to guide other people. I'm wondering if you've seen that pattern. You know, have. Um, so have. And and that's when, you know, there, there's so much wisdom. And what's interesting is that the universe wants balance. Um, if we look at everything comes to homeostasis eventually. And that's what the universe is supporting us to do. And it's a great journey. You know, this, this, as I shared earlier, and I think you have too, addiction is such a great catalyst because you have to face it. And suffering can be that way too. Unfortunately, uh, and, and you had shared a little about this in the early part of our discussion, you know, unfortunately, a lot of change has to come through suffering. And hopefully yes. you get to the point where that's not the case anymore. And a lot of times that suffering, people will then go through the normal channels, whatever the normal channel, you know, the more conventional channels, the doctor, the therapist, the treatment center, and then they'll start to open up to these more esoteric models, which have been around forever. And this very thing that you're talking about, kind of getting down to our deepest core self and figuring out who we are and how we walk in the world is going to be important for anybody that's connected to their soul. And yes, addiction. I agree. And I often quote Edward Edinger, a famous uh, psychiatrist and union analyst whose work I've studied quite a bit. His definition of consciousness is quite potent. He says, consciousness is a psychic substance produced not blindly, but in living awareness of opposites. And I think ultimately what I call the pain teacher and what you're referring to as suffering is what's offering us living awareness and the opposites are the choices that we have, more or less, do, don't do, yes, no, inside, outside, inhale, exhale. I mean, everything's that operating on those complementary opposites. And so I think that when we realize that the more conscious we are, the more options we have for freedom, but to be conscious requires that we're aware. And when we're unconscious, then inevitably we, we bang into life. We bang into people and relationships. We bang into, you know, substance abuse or exercise abuse or, you know, any number of things. So, um, you know, I think most people are unaware that uh, pain has a very, very valuable function in that it enhances conscious awareness. And that's one of the reasons I get so concerned with this allopathic approach to just drugging the hell out of things. Yeah, I understand. I think I read on your website that you didn't believe in chemical addiction. Is that correct? Well, I think if, if um, you know, when, when I'm in the throes of something, yes, I drink enough alcohol, my body adapts to it, I'm chemically addicted. Now, I take the alcohol away for 10 years, I can't claim to be chemically addicted then. I take the drink and yet I'm right back to it again. So I don't know that I can put that on a chemical addiction because during right. that time, my cells have, have reoriented towards their normal environment. And so we can't blame everybody, anything on that. But when somebody has, you know, a, a heavy dose of anything going on, including emotions, hey, I'm going to get addicted to that. I mean, my body's used to it. 
That's yes. called an addiction. And so to that, to that extent, I do believe in it that way, but I don't believe that, that, Hey, once an addict, always in it, because we would be addicted to every emotion that, that lingered around. And, you know, many people have fallen in love, but aren't necessarily addicted to love. Um, so there's, there's just a way that we synthesize and navigate through that. So I, I think that in terms of the long-term impact of, of addiction on people, I don't know that it's a chemical thing. Right. Yeah, I would agree. And I, the other level, too, to that is I've done a lot of research into psychedelics, which are classically not uh, physically addictive, but I found that they can be psychologically addictive. For example, I see a lot of people running off into the jungle into so-called shaman to get really a, 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 some kind of an escape from the realization that the choices that they're making and the way they're living is what's causing their problem. But while they're in a ceremony, they somehow seem to be alleviated of all that, uh, unless, of course, you get a nice tour of the shadow. But um, my point being is that some things are not chemically addictive, but they're psychologically addictive based on the relationship that we have with them. Yeah. Uh, agreed. You know, I think everybody's looking for the panacea and everybody's looking for the easy way out. You know, everybody's kind of looking and we're all, or I shouldn't say we're all of anything, but many people are looking external to them. And as you know, Paul, it's not external. Uh, psychedelics are great because they can help us to open up, but they're a tool. They're not the, yeah. they're a tool yeah, to get to the end. There's no getting out of the work. And no, I, I always tell people the psychedelics will show you where the door to healing is, but they won't pick you up and make you walk through it. That's your job. Yeah. yeah. I would love it if you could just tell us what, in your observation, some of the telltale signs of addiction are. Well, I think, you know, when people are any kind of change in behavior. So let's let's look at that. I think that when people's sleep patterns are different, when they're, when somehow there's a change, when people are not themselves, if we're looking at family members, of course, family members want to give the other member the benefit of the doubt. And I think this is where my suggestion is tap into your own intuition and trust what you're feeling. And yes, um, there's always a strange circumstance that emerges here and there that, you know, just weird things happen to people and that's explainable. But a consistent things that are that if it appears to be wrong, then most likely it is wrong. But I think if we look at people that are all of a sudden now changing their their habits in terms of their comings and goings, uh, their habits in terms of money, their habits in terms of sleeping, their habits in terms of their irritability or their uh, just the way they're navigating the world. These are all signs that something is going on. And it doesn't, of course, has to be an addiction. It could be something else that's bothering them. But um, I think for family members and for loved ones, it's really important to trust your intuition because you know these people and you know what's going on. And it's, it's easy to get talked out of it because we want so desperately to believe them, right? We love them. We care about them. We want them to be successful and we want to believe them. But... Um, that that's that would be my advice. Yes. Well, if you were leaving the earth tomorrow, what words of wisdom would you like to share with the people of the world before you go? Well, if I was leaving the world, and and I almost did that, and 
And uh, I share this little story, you know, as I was getting to the end of my life and, you know, I just didn't have any more energy, 20 years of treatment. Where am I going to go? I've tried everything under the sun. I've got very little life force. I'm, 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 I, it's coming. And I wasn't concerned about losing my family or my bucket list that I didn't do. What bothered me most, Paul, is that I didn't fulfill my mission. I didn't do what I came to this world to do, and I didn't even know what it was, but it bothered me. So my advice for people, if I was leaving in the world is don't wait, you know, you have something to do. You have some unique offering, whatever that is. Maybe that's raising your child in a certain way. Maybe that's, you know, planting a garden in the way that you want to, whatever your soul song is, don't wait to sing it because, uh, it's our regrets that get us. It's not all the things, you know, when people are on their deathbed, rarely do you hear them say, you know, I should have never quit my job and joined the Merchant Marines. I should have never done that. I should have never, you know, eloped and ran off to Vegas to marry my sweetheart. People often lament what they didn't do. Yes. And so I would say, don't wait, because inside of every single person, because we are all unique and everybody, there's no two people with the same energetic signature on this planet right now. And there's no two people except for identical twins or, or twins that have the same genetic signature. So there's something special about you and offer it to the world. And in doing that, you'll have participated in evolution and done your job as a human being on this planet. That's what I would do. Yeah. Yes. Well, I've really enjoyed our conversation and I'm grateful for this time with you. And, and uh, you know, I've, I looked into the sanctuary quite a lot. And as I wrote you in an email, it's exactly the kind of place I'd love to be and, and not, not because I have an addiction, but I really love what you put together there. Right. I'm in the process of looking for land to create my own sanctuary, so to speak, to do the work that I do. And I was just really impressed with the beauty and the harmony and the energy of your place. So I give you a big uh, congratulations on what you've created for people there. Well, thanks. Where can people find uh, more about you, your work in the sanctuary? Well, go right to sanctuary.net, www.sanctuary.net. There's a lot of videos, a lot of things, you know, we kind of put our hearts on our sleeves out there. That's everything we know and everything we think we'll share it with you. And, and so, you know, this is all about making the world a better place. So I'd also invite you, Paul, if you're ever around Sedona and you want to stop by um, we have the best food on planet Earth. So if you get here at noon or six, we'll feed you. I'm going to come see you for sure. Uh, my, my friend Aubrey Marcus has a ranch in Sedona. So uh, last I was there, I was out visiting him. But now that I know you're there, I'm going to consider I have a new friend and I got to come check you out. That would be a big honor for us, Paul. Really would appreciate it. And on that note, really appreciate all that you're doing in the world. And thanks for bringing, on, bringing forth everything that you're doing. Thank you very much. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this interview and uh, Penny will share more about where to find Dean in a second here. So thanks all of you and share the love and uh, pay attention to everything we've shared so you can use the challenges in your life to create opportunities and get your head down in your heart and let that be your compass and be the unique expression of yourself that you came to the world to be. Lots of love. Aho. Great spirit. Aho. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Dean Tara Borelli. You can find more about The Sanctuary online at sanctuary.net or on Facebook at The Sanctuary at Sedona. 
Dean has a complimentary ebook for Living 4D with Paul Check listeners. Be Recovered, Transformational Healing Through Integrative Addictive Recovery. Grab your copy today at sanctuary.net forward slash b-recovered-e-book. Follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at Living4D Podcast or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash Living4D with Paul Check. You can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and the Czech Institute's blog at checkinstitute.com forward slash blog.